We're looking this morning at Isaiah in another installment of our series called Captured by His Character. So you find that book in your Bible. It's in the Old Testament. And we are going to be focusing on chapter 7 of this 66 chapter prophecy. Now, while you're finding Isaiah 7, let me explain to you something about pastors that we like to do, okay? Pastors, preachers, whatever you call them, they love to make a point. You laugh like that, it worries me, you know? We like to sometimes be dogmatic. Often we like to get a little loud and but to drive home a statement. And, and sometimes in making a point, we make a statement, and that's okay. And with statements, a lot of times people agree. They'll say, Amen, or they'll say, Go forward, or Booyah, or you know, something like that. Just you know, That's kind of more our style, right? Um, but often statements, though we agree with them, they don't pack quite the punch until you understand why. You agree with the statements. Does that make sense? And stories communicate the why of a statement. In fact, Jimmy was sharing with me that between services. He says, for him, stories help make sense out of life. Isaiah knew that as well. And in his prophecy, he makes lots of statements. Didactic, theological, prophetic, profound statements that we can hang our hat on. That we would say, Amen, so be it, booyah, Isaiah. We would agree with that. But in chapter 7, he gives us a story that helps us understand why we agree with a lot of these statements. So your Bible's at Isaiah 7. We're going to look expressly at chapter 7 because it sets the backdrop for chapters 8 through 12. So we're going to kind of look at all the chapters, but primarily chapter 7. And we're going to see in chapter 7 a historical lesson followed by a prophetic principle. Okay, The story here of King Ahaz and his refusal to trust the Lord, his disobedience to Jehovah, will paint an awesome picture of, of what our response to God should be in times of crisis or, or in face of the mess we're in. So we're going to see a historical lesson and a prophetic principle and how that's portrayed in the remaining chapter. So with your Bible open, Isaiah 7. Let's first of all understand the historical lesson here, okay? It's in the first 12 verses. And I'll go ahead and just kind of give you the, the point of these first 12 verses. The point of these first 12 verses, you might want to write this down. We'll see it kind of spelled out for us. Is that Ahaz, he chose not to believe that his only way out of the military mess he was in was by trusting God. In other words, he, he missed this point. Only faith in God could save Ahaz. Trusting, not trying, was God's requirement. Just jot that down. Kind of keep it in the back of your mind. And let's read these first 12 verses and understand exactly what happened here historically. The Bible says in Isaiah 7-1, When Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, and remember in chapter 6, Uzziah had just passed away. So now his grandson is reigning as king. It says, When he was king of Judah, then King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. And here's what happened. Aram and Israel were both north of Jerusalem and Judah. And they were only marching on Judah. They were marching on Jerusalem because they needed a third ally to stop Assyria. Are you with me? This is one of those survivor alliances. In other words, they were going to be friends 
with Jerusalem and Judah, but only because they had to be friends because they had to stop the big dog on the block. Does that make sense? So they militarily came into Judah and Jerusalem and said, listen, we want to overtake you and, and we're going to rule your city because we need another city to be on our side because the truth is we're all three going to be destroyed if we don't get together. Well, that didn't happen. They could not overpower Judah and Jerusalem the first time. Well, they went back. They kind of regathered their horses. They're going to try again. That's where verse 2 comes in now. Now, the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, which is another name for Israel. And so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. In other words, they're trembling in their boots. They're worried because, man, we withstood it once, but here they are again. They're going to invade. They're going to attack. Can we hold them out? Can we stop them one more time? Well, on the news of that, the Lord said to Isaiah in verse 3, Go out, you and your son Shear Jashub, which, by the way, means a remnant will survive. Isn't that interesting? Just a little side note here. Isaiah's son was a, a living testament of Isaiah's message. Pretty cool, isn't it? I mean, his message, the son's name meant a remnant will survive. So as Isaiah preached judgment, as he preached about what the coming day that God restored Jerusalem and Israel, even his son's name, when they heard it, they knew, man, there, something's happening. God's not going to let all of us be destroyed. So anyway, he, he and his son, he said, go out and meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. In other words, you can have a rendezvous with this man. And you say this to him. Be careful. Keep calm. Don't be afraid. Now, that, that sounds easy in English, doesn't it? The Hebrew um, construction here is it's an incredible use of verbs. It would mean similar to something like this. Uh, sit down and do nothing. It's almost as if you're actually attempting to do something, but the something you're doing is nothing. It's almost like hurry up and wait. You ever heard that phrase before? In other words, he's saying, hey, listen, Ahaz, just relax. Don't do a thing. God's got everything under control. That was the message. And that's how it started off. Don't worry. He said, don't lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. I love that phrase, don't you? Because if, if, if they were the two uh, mighty nations, Aram and, and, of course, Israel marching in on Judah... Judah was afraid. They were scared. They saw them as, you know, hot irons, so to speak, as blazing timbers. But God said they were nothing more than what? Smoldering stubs. In other words, they're about to go out. He says, so you're really afraid of nothing. He says in verse 5, Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Do you see that phrase? In other words, they were going to overthrow the current king, establish a puppet king, and then together those three nations would try to withstand Assyria because Assyria was really the big force in the Mesopotamian region. That's who was threatening all of the people in that area. So they thought, we'll put a guy in there who's kind of our man, and we'll hold out against Assyria. Verse 7, Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. And by the way, that's our subject next week. The sovereign nature of God. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait to get into it. I might just get in today a little bit. You never know. Just hang on here. Verse 7, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Read verse 7 with me from the NIV, would you? It will not take place. It will not happen. Any questions there? Was God speaking a different language? Was He confusing? Did He stutter? Any questions? Not a bit. Let me read it again for you. It will not take place. 
it will not happen. Now, I'm not sure what part of that Ahaz didn't understand, but God was abundantly clear, wasn't He? Ahaz, what you're hearing and what you're seeing, don't worry, be calm, sit tight, relax. It ain't going to happen. And here's why. Listen very carefully. He explains in the rest of the verses. He says, The head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to even be a people. He's speaking here of the invasion in 671 in which the northern kingdom was essentially dismantled. That was the end of that, of that part. Verse 9, The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. Now watch what he did here in these two verses. The word only is critical, critical in understanding this use of Hebrew poetry here. He's saying that if you take these nations that are really gathered against you, if you take them back to their source, which is Damascus, according to verse 8, and according to verse 9, Samaria, they're just man-made capitals. They're just cities that, that sprang up and stem from humans. And the contrast, by implication, is this. Hey, house of Judah, Jerusalem, what's your source? It's the Davidic Abrahamic covenant. It is Jehovah God. So let's just think about who's really matched up here. It's a couple of human cities versus Almighty God. Are you with me? So Isaiah is saying to Ahaz, Listen, you're worried about nothing. You're shaking like the leaves on a tree. But the truth is, both these powers that you're so worried about, they stem from just human descent. They're just, just, uh, they're just man-made mechanisms. They're just human military powers. You've got God on your side. It's almost as if he was quoting what was yet to be written in the New Testament. If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen, church? And then he closes out verse 9 by saying this. So if you do not stand firm in your faith, and the word faith there has an understood object. In other words, your faith in God, not in Damascus, not in Samaria, not in your ability to ally yourself with quote-unquote friends to avoid the overwhelming power of Assyria one day. In other words, if you don't stand firm in your faith in God that He said it will not happen, what does it say? Then you will not stand at all. In other words, God said to Ahaz, Ahaz, there's only one way out of the mess you're in. And that's by trusting me. And if you don't take this route, you don't get B, C, or all of the above. You get destroyed. Are you with me? You see, it's very important to understand the historical lesson here. That only faith in God could have saved Ahaz. And God was asking Ahaz to trust, not try. It's a very important historical lesson to learn here. Now, verses 10 and 11, we see that the Lord commands Ahaz to ask for a sign. Interesting verse there. I'm not sure how to explain it very well, to be honest with you. I'm not sure why God asked Ahaz to say, hey, ask me for a sign. He commanded him to. But there's something here in regards to this. God wanted Ahaz to begin to obey for the purpose that, that God would then show Himself faithful in response to that obedience. In other words, Ahaz, just, just go ahead and ask me to do something because I will and it will prove to you that I am the God who saves. I'll rescue you. Don't worry. Just, just go ahead and do what you do and, and I'll show you. I'll prove it to you, kind of like. It's somewhat similar to what Malachi said. He said, if you will give 
and bring your tithes to the storehouse. He said, what did God say? He said, prove me if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing. Remember that? So God asked for us an action to give. Are you with me? And then what does He say He'll do in return? He said, I'll prove you that I'm God. Are you with me? Now, we don't like it when it talks about giving, do we? We'd rather go to Ahaz and talk about Ahaz's problem with obeying and why God necessarily... See, are you with me? I figured that hit a little home. We'll close the home there. But it's this idea of obeying and then God saying, yes, you've done your part. Now watch me be God. I'll prove it to you. Well, Ahaz hears that and look what he says back to God. I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Almost a smug, religious, uh, church kind of answer. It's almost like, I wouldn't dare do that to Jehovah. Now, last time I checked, we don't have the right to say no to God. I hope you mean that. When God commands His children, we only say, yes, Lord. Amen? So I'm I'm surprised that he would say, I will not ask the Lord because the Lord said, I want you to do this. Some kind of gall, isn't it? It's awfully quiet in here too, isn't it? Well, at that point, we know that Ahaz disbelieved. He disobeyed. He did not stand firm in his faith. At this point, there seems to be a shift. Judgment seems to be certain. And God seems to say now suddenly, well, if you're not going to ask for a sign, if you're not going to obey, if you're not going to put your faith in me alone, I'll give you a sign and I will provide a way out of this mess for not just now but later. But it won't be because of you, Ahaz. You've chosen to disobey. It'll be because of my own redeeming nature that I, so to speak, save your hide. Let me show what I'm talking about. This is a very interesting portion of Scripture. Verse 13. Then Isaiah said, here now, almost a change of emphasis. Do you see that? Ahaz made a decision. I'm going to take my chances with these military alliances. I'm not going to seek the Lord or trust Him alone. So Isaiah said, here now, you house of David. Interesting words there because he moves from a singular focus on Ahaz to a plural focus on the house of David. The entire congregation. In fact, all of the yous in these next few verses are plural in their original form. He says, is it not enough to try the patience of men? Now, will you try the patience of my God also? In other words, you've been toying with these nations, negotiating, bartering, going to the table, trying to figure out a way to save yourself. That's very trying, isn't it? It's like when you're with your kids and you're trying to work out a situation and they have an offer, you have an offer, you're just kind of at the table. It's kind of some humor there, folks. You can lighten up a little bit, okay? It worries you out as a parent. You don't say, hey, just do what I ask you to do. Are you with me? And some of you moms are like, we're with you, Pastor. We're with you. I'm telling you. That wears God out. When God gives us a command, when He says, listen, here's the solution. And we're like, well, God, here's another alternative. It just, it's in a personifying way. It wears Him out. So He's saying, hey, you've done that with me. Now you do it with me. Ahaz, I'm done negotiating. He says, you wouldn't ask for a sign. You didn't believe in me alone. So here's what I'm going to do. Look at verse 14, which is a verse that we use at Christmas, but bet you didn't know it came out of a military story, did you? Here's the context of this famous Christmas prophecy we love. He says, therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. You didn't ask for one, Ahaz, but I can tell you what. The Lord Himself will give you one. Now listen very carefully, church. Don't turn your brains off. That intensive pronoun, the Lord Himself, it does mean that God will 
will do it by himself, but it may possibly also mean that the Lord himself is the sign. In other words, this is such a personal sign that God will do it and God is it. Let me show you what I'm talking about. The Lord Himself will give you a sign. Here's the sign. The virgin will be with a child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Okay, what's that the sign for? It's the sign that God will save His people. That's the sign that God will redeem Israel, Judah, Jerusalem. He's going to save the day one day. The sign is that there will be a virgin who will have a child and he'll name be Emmanuel. Now, you automatically assume that's Jesus Christ, but let me just assume that perhaps you took the story historically. Because this, this verse is a historical story, right? It's in a setting of a battle, right? And it wouldn't be right to lift it off and just throw it on some Christmas card and think it means something it doesn't really mean. There are some people, liberal scholars, who think that this actually is referring to perhaps the woman in chapter 8 who had a son. But the names don't match up. There are some other scholars who think this may refer to a son that Isaiah had that we don't know about. I disagree with both of those. I think it's speaking clearly of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was born to the only virgin we know about in history, Mary. Are you with me? Let me give you a couple of reasons for that. First of all, it says the Lord Himself will give you a sign, the virgin. That word virgin there, nowhere in the Old Testament is it ever translated in any other way than virgin. Not a single instance. There's lots of words for woman, unmarried woman, young woman, mother. But there's only one word for virgin. This is the only word that's ever used for virgin. I've got to tell you something. I don't know of any other woman who did not have a sexual experience with a man who had a child other than Mary. Are you with me? She's the virgin in view. Second of all, the name of the... the uh, the Son is Emmanuel, which is God with us. You see the E-L on the end of Emmanuel? That's a divinity ending in Hebrew. You've heard of El Elyon, El Shaddai. Here's Emmanuel, God with us. And then thirdly, Matthew chapter 1 clearly shows us this is the prophecy of Christ to come. Look at Matthew 1 real quick. This settles it for all of us, no doubt. Matthew chapter 1, remember Joseph had the dream? After he thought about divorcing Mary... The angel appeared in a dream and said, No, 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 don't do that because your wife is impregnated by the Holy Spirit with the Son of God. And verse 22 says, look at this, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, which was what? Here's here's Isaiah chapter 7. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which is God with us. What will this son do? Why is he God with us? What's he going to do? Look back at verse 21. You're to give him the name Jesus because he will what? Save his people from their sins. Guess what? The sign that God would eventually one day redeem his people. He'll hold true to the promise in Isaiah 7. The sign was the son. Ahaz refused to believe. He said, I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to ask God for a sign. So God said, I will myself give you a sign. And it won't come right now. It will come later. But it will be my son. And when he comes, he will show you there is a chance and the, the certainty of redemption. Remember, the, the, the view here is Ahaz's salvation. Remember? Who could save him from this military invasion? And God said, I will just ask for a sign. He said, no. So God said, I'll give you a sign that I really do save people. And His name is Jesus. 
Are you with me, guys? Do you see the prophetic principle here? Things shifted from just being about Ahaz to now we see a larger picture. God is a redeeming God. He does save people. And proof positive that God saves those who are in a seriously spiritual mess is not a what, but a who. It's the person of Jesus Christ. That's why I say to you, only faith in God can save you. Trusting, not trying, is still God's requirement. But Todd, I want to ally myself with this church over here. They say if I do good things and give a certain amount of money, I'll be in good standing. Churches don't get people to heaven. But Todd, I went to this uh, class for 13 weeks and they said that I was a member. That I was in good standing and I was confirmed. Classes don't get people to heaven. But Todd, when I was really little, they sprinkled me and got me wet and something about the water was holy. Water doesn't get people to heaven. Only Jesus gets people to heaven. Any questions? Are you with me? I mean, it's just so clear. It's like Isaiah chapter 7, verse 9 says, if you don't stand firm in your faith, you're not going to stand at all. And what was true for Ahaz 700 years before Christ is true now for us 2,008 years after Christ. The only way to God is through faith in God. And the sign that He will honor His Word and keep His promise and redeem you as His nature is, is Jesus Christ. Let me show you more proof of this. Let's keep reading in the text here. Isaiah 7, he begins to talk about it in verse 15. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. I think this is a symbolic, poetic verse about his modest, poor upbringing. Then verse 16 has an interesting phrase, but before the boy knows enough, in other words, before he actually comes into existence, he says, the land of the two kings you dread. What's that? Remember? Those two that were the north of uh, Judah that were coming to press upon them. Those two lands, they will experience, um, says here, they'll be laid to waste. And the Lord will bring on you and your people in the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Did you read that, guys? The very thing Ahaz was worried about is going to happen. He chose not to believe. He chose not to put his faith in God alone. And in doing that, he chose a terrible avenue because he got the end result anyway. Assyria would come along and destroy them. And in fact, most scholars historically and even theologians believe that after Ahaz's reign, the only kings that ever came to Israel at that point and, and uh, Judah, the only kings that ever reigned were mere puppet kings. For all intent and practical purposes, that was the end of the monarchy. And for, for hundreds of years following that, you know, Jerusalem fell in 586 and there was invasion and captivity. From that point forward, they were looking for this king who would, who would assume the throne again. Are you with me, guys? There was a, 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 a really a deep sense among the citizens, this remnant, that we're still looking for a king. Of course they were. They were looking for Emmanuel. They were looking for the sign Well, the rest of this chapter talks about how God began to whistle for these foreign pagan nations to come in and actually destroy His people and their land. All but a remnant, at least. And for most of the text between 8 and the end of chapter 12 is all about 
of the destruction and the judgment coming. But in the middle of all of these uh, judgment passages, in the middle of how these things speak of, of how God's going to bring against uh, Israel and, and Jerusalem to pagan nations, there are a few snapshots of the redemptive nature of God, of this sign. Remember the sign? How it's Jesus? There's a few other passages here that God kind of throws in to show us that all is not lost. That though it looks like there's judgment, though it's a lot of punishment, I am still God, I still redeem, and, and the sign is coming. He calls it the uh, child in chapter 9. Look with me chapter 9. Here's another Christmas passage you love to read, but you probably aren't aware where it came out of, are you? A military story during the reign of Ahab. Look at chapter 9, especially verses 1 through 7. I'll just read a few verses here toward the end. Verse 6. You've seen this. You've sung it. You've heard it. Look what it says. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And he talks about the government will be on his shoulders and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. I mean, that's a direct reference to Jesus Christ. He'll be called the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and He will reign on David's throne and... The last part of the verse says, The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Do you see that prophetic principle in play again? Yes, judgment looms large. Ahaz didn't believe, but God will give a sign that He will not forsake His people. He will redeem them eventually. That sign is also called a child in chapter 9. It's also called a branch in chapter 11. Keep going forward. Chapter 11. Are you there? Chapter 11, verse 20. It says, The shoot will come up from Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And if in your Bible it's translated branch with a capital B, it's a reference to Jesus Christ. Here again, in the midst of judgment, when things look grim, guess what? God's redemptive nature is trustworthy. And even in the mess you're in, God can save you. You need proof? Just look to Jesus. He's the sign. He's the child. He's the branch. I love the way chapter 12 closes. He's speaking of the day in which this branch, this child, this uh, Redeemer, this Savior, this sign, when He takes His throne in Jerusalem finally, in that 1,000 year reign, we called it a few weeks ago that day, remember? When that day comes and He's finally ruling visibly, Look what it says here. This is the song of praise we're going to sing. And this is a great song about God's redemptive nature. It speaks of this salvation that comes from Him. Look what it says. I will praise You, O Lord. Although You were angry with me, Your anger has turned away. That's a reference to the cross. To when the sign, the Son, was crucified. Amen? And, and God's judicial nature was satisfied. It says, You have comforted me. Verse 2, Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. You will say that, won't we, one day when he's reigning? Oh, that Ahaz would have said that 700 years before Christ. Oh, that he would have said, God is my salvation. Because God told him, nothing will happen to you. It will not take place. But he chose to disbelieve, didn't he? Well, the writer here says that one day we'll all realize that only God is our salvation. He says in verse 2, The Lord is the strength in my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Do you see the word salvation repeated over and over again? It's this song of praise about God's redemptive, restorative nature. I like verse 4. It says, In that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord. Call on His name. Make known among the nations what He's done. Proclaim that His name is exalted. Why is His name exalted? Because who else can save like God? Amen? 
I mean, no one redeems like Jesus. He says, let this be known to all the world. Verse 6, shout aloud, sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. Do you see the, the redemptive nature of God shining through these chapters? It is just like God to, to get us out of the mess we're in. And though Ahaz disobeyed and didn't believe, God said, Ahaz, your own sinful actions can't stop my nature. And I will redeem this people and I will redeem all people who simply put their faith in me alone. You need proof? I'm going to give you a sign. His name is Jesus. He's a child. He's the branch. He's, he's our salvation. And the proof, positive sign that God listens and redeems people when they put their faith in Him is the historical reality of Jesus Christ. Listen first and listen very carefully. Please don't miss this. Christianity is the most historically reliable system of belief there is on on the planet. I'm done with people who make us out to be, you know, myth-loving, shallow-thinking, you know, faith-walking people that have no facts to support what we believe. I'm done with that. And you need to be done with it too, by the way. Man, the Word of God. And we're all about faith. Don't get me wrong. Because without faith, you can't please God. And it's all about faith. That's how you're saved. But our faith does not rest on an unsubstantiated amount of evidence. Our faith is not some leap in the dark, some blind loyalty. Our faith rests in one person. Jesus Christ, who was historical, reliable, verifiable. The veracity of His existence, the documentation of His death, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, attested to by 500 people after He arose. The the, the veracity of Jesus Christ is overwhelming. So you cannot turn a deaf ear to the redemptive nature of God. You can't say, well, I believe you get there some other way. Then look at Christ and say He wasn't real. Say all the history books are wrong. 500 folks were, mis- were mistaken. But if you can't do away with Jesus, then you've got something to wrestle with. If there was a Jesus and He died in a reality, He, he was a literally time and space person. He was wrapped in flesh. He was known to people. He, you could touch Him and feel Him and see Him. That's what John said in 1 John, remember? He said we've handled the Word of life. In other words, he was saying, guys, Jesus is real. And if He's real, historical, verifiable, truthful, then the only place you can logically and intellectually end up is in this place. If Jesus Christ is real and He rose from the dead, then the only way back to God is through Him. And if you choose to believe any other way, you are choosing the same route as Ahaz. You're choosing human alliances and man-made mechanisms, but they'll only end you in the same place. Judgment. There's no way out of the mess you're in except through Jesus. He is the sign that God redeems people. Isaiah 7 proves it. Aren't you thankful that God gave us Jesus? And Christmas takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? I've quoted these verses like you have. I never knew till months ago they came out of a military story. I never knew they had historical settings. But man, I tell you something. I told our family the other night, we were at dinner, and I just said to them, I said, guys, I want you to know, I don't believe because I'm a pastor. I don't believe because it's my job. I believe because his, history backs up the claims of the Bible and Christianity 
and Jesus Christ are historically viable. They're they're evidential. They're 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 uh, truthful, and I believe because the Word of God says what history backs up. It's it's a great tandem, and my faith is not sitting on a wing in a prayer. My faith is resting in a realistic historical person. The sign that God gave to say I will redeem is Jesus Christ. And if your faith is in anything other than Jesus, you're the one on a wing in a prayer. You're the one taking a shot in the dark. Taking a leap off the cliff. Are you with me, guys? It's high time that we as Christians stood up for an intellectual, evidential type of Christianity and faith that rests in the historical person of the sign from Jehovah God, His Son, Jesus. We shouldn't back down or be intimidated or to be afraid. And if this is all kind of news to you, man, get your Bible out and start reading. Dig in. Man, uh, get prepared for battle. Amen? And so that we can intellectually and honestly and humbly engage with people about why Jesus Christ is the only way to God. Because He is the sign that God is a redeeming God. Now listen very carefully. Knowing that, you're left with a decision. Will you believe and stand in your faith alone? Which is the only choice you have. Or will you say, no, I'll choose another mechanism. I'll try another way. You can do that because God gives us all the ability to choose. But I must warn you, as an honest proclaimer of the Gospel, any choice but Jesus is a choice that ends in hell. It's like Ahaz. He chose other ways, but guess what? The end result was Assyria still came on them. Are you with me? You can try the good works theory. You can say, I married into a family that was Christian. You can say, I gave a lot of money. I got baptized. I joined the church. You can say all those things. But until you can, until you can say, I believe and embrace the gospel as the only way to be saved, I accept. And I don't mean accept like you claim is, is true. It's true whether you claim it or not. Amen. But you embrace it. You, you identify with the truth that Jesus Christ came to earth as God. He died, was buried, and rose again. And that alone satisfies the wrath of God against sin. And so if you want to get to heaven, you better get on the train called Jesus. Amen. It's the only one going there. Have you embraced the gospel and Jesus Christ as the only way back to God? Let us use the word back. Because God owns you once, doesn't He? He owns you by creation. And redemption is all about God owning you twice. I say it like this. God owns me by creation and He owns me now by the crucifixion. And when I was 14 years old and realized... You've heard this story a lot of times, I know. But there are new folks here, folks who just checked out our church. When I was 14, I realized that God didn't just create me, but God loved me. And His redeeming nature was calling me home. And I realized, you mean there's a way out of this mess called sin? I don't have to go to hell? And God says, exactly. I gave a sign. His name is Jesus. And if you'll just believe, I'll redeem you. And that day I prayed. I said, God, I believe that you're the only way. And I believe that your son Jesus was historical and real and truthful. And in the gospel that his death, burial, and resurrection is the only way back to you. I believe. 
That day, God did for me what He did for Greg and Sherry when you got saved and for many others. He redeemed me. He bought me back. Amen. Because that's just like God. That's what God does. You don't believe me? Look at the cross. Just ask Jesus. The sign that God is a redeeming God. I'm no different than a guy named Tony. We'll call him, uh, well, his name is Tony, but his last name is Lavasan. Now, I think that's the right way to say it. Tony was in a gang in L.A., and that gang began to attend a Bible study led by Rick and Nikki Davis. You know Rick and Nikki, they spoke for us last week. And Rick's teaching a mobilizing permission class right across the hall right now. They attended that class, that Bible study. That's interesting. Gangster Bible study. I don't know what they wear and how they speak. I'm not sure how that works, but I wouldn't mind going to that, you know? So, Tony is in this Bible study, and it's the last night. Rick explains how folks can be saved, and they all kind of disband, and Tony goes home, and he lives with his aunt. He's very dysfunctional, and in his room, with the door closed, he'll tell you that that night, he said, God, wherever you are, I believe what that Rick man said. He said, I don't know anything about this stuff called... Jesus and Christ, he said, I, all I know is a Laotian type of belief. You know, very animistic, lots of spirits. He said, but if, if I believe what he said is true based on the Bible, and so I believe in Jesus Christ tonight, that he died for my sins and asked for forgiveness, and God, I, am, I just believe you and the gospel saved me. And he did that. God saved Tony Lavasant that night in, in Los Angeles. Well, that same night, while, while he's crying out to God to be redeemed, Rick and Nicky are just at their house he blocks away and they're sensing God's Spirit saying we need to take Tony with us when we go to San Diego. They were going to move some of their ministry operations to San Diego, another Laotian uh, community. So they didn't understand it and they were like, God, you can't just take someone's kid. you know. And, well, they went, long story short, they worked it out and they took Tony with them. And in the course of that, Tony said, I did what you said, Rick. I trusted Jesus. Well, he moved in with them. They got guardianship. I think they eventually adopted him and he became their son. Um, years passed. He went on to college. Felt God's call to be a missionary. And today, if you go to Laos, about ten hours down some winding roads from Rick and Nikki's station where they're missionizing, shall we say. They're teaching English, of course, but where they're stationed. About ten hours down from that is another station with two other English teachers, Tony and May Lavasanth who when he was a teenager was a gangster in L.A. But because God is a redeeming God, Tony is now in Laos with his own people, shall we say, helping them see the sign that God loves to save people. Who is that? Jesus Christ. You see, guys, it's all over the world. It's right here in Ankeny. It's in people in this room. God redeems and restores broken things. He builds uh, broken people back. He, he saves lost people. And prove positive He does it is a man named Jesus. And if you've never believed in Jesus Christ, I can think of no better day than today to get out of the spiritual mess you're in. And you are in one. There's no way to avoid it. For those who choose not to believe, judgment is the only option. But because God is a redeeming God and gave us the sign, His Son, for all who would believe in Jesus Christ and embrace the gospel, His life lived, 
His death died. His bodily resurrection. You can be saved. Isn't that great news? That's the gospel message. So today I ask you to come to a place of decision. Do you know confidently that you belong to God? That you've been redeemed? That you're part of the choir of those who sing the song of salvation? Are you part of that crowd? Notice I didn't ask you to see your giving records for Kiwanis Club or First Family Church or your baptismal certificate or your Sunday school pins. I ask one thing. Has there been a time in your life when you have placed your belief in God and His Son Jesus? Because without faith, you will not stand, the Bible says. The just shall live by faith. Amen? It's all about faith. And I'm this morning showing you this faith is not a leap in the dark. It's an historical assurance. It's a truthful confidence that God will redeem all those who call upon His name. If you've never this morning trusted Jesus Christ as your only Savior, if you've been banking on everything else, hoping that your good works might do the trick or something, this morning will you set all that aside and will you just simply pour your heart out to God and say, God, I believe only Jesus gets me back to you. Your redeeming nature gave us a sign. It was your Son. And I cling to Him as the only way to be saved. In fact, you could be praying that in your heart right now. God can be moving from the, from the portals of heaven, saving souls in this very room. Amen. Hallelujah. Because that's what He does. He's a redeeming God. And He loves to save people. Does God need to save you this morning? If so, I pray your heart will cry out to Him, God, save me! And because of Jesus, I can guarantee you He will.